Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And on today's show, we're going to continue our discussion that we began last week, taking a look at Article 27 of Monastic Vows of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And we began talking about uh, uh, how we defend our position as it as applies to the practice of monastic vows that had become in the Middle Ages. And the church, uh, we, we even began that discussion talking about how the church still struggles with the mindset that had developed even still today. And so we're going to continue that discussion. And to do that today, we have a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians. Uh, we have Pastor Timothy Apple, who is the pastor of Grace in Smithville, Texas. Grace Lutheran, of course, in Smithville, Texas. Although when we're talking about Grace, we're always talking about Lutheran things. That's what we're all about. So, of course, it's a Lutheran church. And then I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. And to remind you, we are a call-in show. You can call in and interact, ask your questions. You can call 1-800-730-2727. You can also find us on social media at KFUO Radio and also KFUO at KFUO.org for an email. And we'd be glad to take any sort of interaction and provide clarity where we can for you uh, as we continue to make our way through this uh, discussion here. I, I guess I'll go ahead and welcome my fellow confessor here, Pastor Apple. Do you have anything to add as we open the show here? Good afternoon, Pastor Smith. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I, I think you gave a good summary of what we talked about last week, and, and a reminder again, too, that, that as we get into this discussion of monastic vows, and uh, as it deals especially with the topic of good works in the life of a Christian, that one of the main points we talked about last week um, is that good works are those that are given to us by God, uh, not those that we invent, and especially when they're invented by us in order to try to justify ourselves. And I think if we kind of keep our, our reminder that, that that's where we're starting from, then, then we're going to go to a, a good place um, and, and stay true to, to what Christ has given us in terms of uh, the teaching of his church. That's an excellent point. And actually, I'm going to throw it back to you here, too. I know something that you had mentioned that, uh, um, you know, in kind of our show prep for this and so forth, you, you had talked about, it might be good to talk about that, that technical term that we have in the church called vocation. It's a it's a word that Luther used a lot in his writings. He, he, he did a lot of work around that theological uh, doctrine of our faith. And uh, it, it does tie into this, and especially what you said there of, you know, the, the good works that God gives to us and not ones that we invent ourselves. And we did talk about that, but we didn't necessarily bring it to that topic of vocation. And I think that it, it'll, it's, it's the the thread that's running throughout this entire article, but I, I just want to give you an opportunity to go ahead and talk a little bit about how does that idea, well, first, what is vocation? Set that foundation for us, as some of our listeners may not be familiar with that term, um, and then talk about how, how does that tie in? How is that kind of the thread that's working behind all of what we're saying here on monastic vows? Sure. Um, a vo vocation is a, a word that means calling. And so when we think about what our vocation is as Christians, we, we think about the things, the, the places or stations in life um, that God has called us 
uh, both to love him and to to serve our neighbor. And typically we think of of three stations, places that God God puts us in life. We think of uh, the family, we think of the the church, and we think of the the state or the the wider community. Um, And within those places, uh, how has God given to us uh, to love our neighbor? What are the good works that he has given us to do? And I think the best place that we can look for those is is to start with the Ten Commandments. These are the things that God has commanded and told us that these are good works. These are the ways that that we know we if we do them, we will be loving Him above all things, and we will be loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so that that when we do these things, we we know we're standing on on solid ground because God's given them uh, to us to do, not so that we would justify ourselves. Uh, but so that our, our faith has that place to, to work itself out in love. And then another place that, that we can look um, to, to see where this vocation plays itself out is, is also in the, in the Catechism, uh, where Luther writes concerning the, the Table of Duties. And there in the Table of Duties, he, he lists a number of Bible passages that deal with uh, various places that God puts us in this life to serve our neighbor, and even calls them holy orders there in the Catechism in the catechism, kind of a reminder that if you really want to know what a holy order is, you don't need to go to a, to a monastery. You you need to look into the, to the word that God's given that, that show you the places that he's put you to serve your neighbor. And, and they're, uh, what we tend to think of as rather simple, ordinary places, um, places such as, you know, how is a pastor to love his congregation? How is a congregation to, to love um, its pastor? How is a husband to love his wife, and how is a wife to love her husband? Um, how, how are parents to love their children and children to love their parents? And these are the good works that God has really given us to do. And, and when we do them, um, we know that they're pleasing in his sight, not because they justify us. They don't. Christ has justified us. They're pleasing in his sight because he's given them to us. Um, and when we receive them as, as a gift, um, when we start from there, uh, then I, I think what, what's laid out here in terms of monasticism, um, it becomes a lot clearer when we, when we have that in mind. Yeah, I, I like I like how you take us there to the Ten Commandments. You know, sometimes we think of that as a as God's burden upon us. You know, this is this is what you have to do to be truly good. And I, I often try to teach it, especially in confirmation, kind of from the other angle of no, this is how God shows how much He loves us. You know, it's it's like saying, you know, um, I don't want you to walk off the top of that building because if you do, you'll hurt yourself. You know, kind of idea. And so it's a it's a statement of love. And I like how you take it there um, that this is the nature of what we know is is true good how do we serve our neighbors in love and and how do we live in love and then also taking us to the table of duties it's just an excellent idea and and i i also want to throw out there i, I don't have the exact quote but uh luther does have that quote uh about a five-year-old o- obeying his parents so thus keeping the fourth commandment um is more holy uh, a work than a monk in a monastery. And and I think that that quote, again, while not an exact quote, because I didn't have it right here in front of me, um, does capture the idea of exactly the sort of theology uh, that they're doing here in this article and at the time of the Reformation. And we talked some last week about how you know, what had developed by the Middle Ages was a corruption of what monasticism began with. It, it began with some noble intentions. Uh, education for the church, for instance, uh, was a big part of it. And, and then had just developed this whole theology and practice around it that really was not faithful. Uh, and, and, and even still at that time wasn't even 
what their theology was necessarily on paper, but the ideas, the common ideas and understandings of it have been uh, conceived, especially as we saw pretty heavily, and we're going to see again, this notion that uh, essentially that, you know, you can earn forgiveness of sins had developed in, in their practice and in their mindset at the time of the Middle Ages. And so taking us back then to, um, no, it, it's really Christ that is our righteousness. And even in our keeping of the Ten Commandments, which we all fail to do, of course, that, that still doesn't earn us our forgiveness of sins, but yet it is a holy way to live because our sins have been forgiven. So I like that great foundational setup that you that you brought us to there. And, and, and so thank you for laying that foundation of vocation for us, because I really do think that this is the thread that's running throughout um, what we're doing here in this article. Also, I, I should probably add here that while we were a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians, we're now a trio, which really throws off the whole C thing that I have going. It does. As Pastor Peter Ill has now joined us. He was a little delayed, but we're glad to have you with us, brother. Glad to be here. Sorry I wasn't running late. That's all right. Do you have anything to add to this? Uh, we were setting up this, this idea of vocation as kind of the thread that's running throughout this article. Everything that you guys have said has been fantastic thus far. I okay. have nothing to add. All right. Well, great to have you on the show, brother. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into the article then itself. And we uh, had made it through paragraph 10 last week. And so a reminder, again, we're working through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 27 of Monastic Vows. Uh, and we are working from the Concordia Reader's Edition uh, available uh, of the Book of Concord available through CPH. However, there are several editions out there. And so that's why we give the article and then the paragraph number, because those are generally pretty standard. And so kind of like uh, chapters and verses in the Bible, you can help you find whatever version you are using. Uh, but we are picking up with paragraph 11, then, of this Article 27 of Monastic Vows. And it reads, First, it is very clear that a vow is illegitimate if the person who makes the vow thinks that the forgiveness of sins before God is merited merited by it or satisfaction is made before God for sins. That's just what we were talking about there, so I'm interjecting here. Now back to the reading. This opinion clearly insults the gospel, which teaches that the forgiveness of sins is freely granted to us for Christ's sake, as has been said at some length before. Therefore, we have quoted correctly Paul's declaration to the Galatians, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's Galatians 5.4 that he's citing. Those who seek the forgiveness of sins, not through faith in Christ, but through monastic works, divert people from Christ's honor and crucify Christ again. Listen, listen how the writers of the confutation look for a way out. They explain this passage of Paul only in the relation to Moses' law, and they add that the monks obey all things for Christ's sake. They try hard to live nearer to the gospel in order to merit eternal life. They add a horrible conclusion in these words, therefore those things are wicked that are here alleged against monasticism. There, they're actually quoting from the confutation, the response of the Roman Catholics, returning to the apology. O Christ, how long will you bear these accusations with which our enemies present your gospel? In the confession, we said that the forgiveness of sins is received freely for Christ's sake through faith. O Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father? You revealed the gospel to the world. If our teaching is not the very voice of the gospel, it, if it is not the eternal father's judgment, we are rightly blamed, but your death is a witness. Your resurrection is a witness. The Holy Spirit is a witness. Your entire church is a witness of this. The true meaning of the gospel is that we receive forgiveness of sins, not because of our merits, but because of you, 
through faith. I'm going to go ahead and pause there. I think we've got a good chunk to kind of hit here. A few things. Um, Pastor Earl, I know you wanted to jump in on on one of the earlier sections there, so go ahead and take us away there. I did. Uh, One of the things that Melanchthon and the confessors are quick to point out here is the challenge that they're giving isn't against monasticism in and of itself, but rather this idea that somebody who makes a monastic vow to become a monk or a nun is a better Christian than somebody who doesn't take such a vow. And it's the idea that you can be a better Christian or even that you can contribute something to your salvation by being a monk or a nun or by taking these vows that becomes the issue. And Melanchthon here, I I like to think of him as jumping up and down and saying, guys, you can't use this as as a way to be a better Christian or as a way to, to be a Christian at all. If you choose to make a vow, that's okay, but let's not add anything to God's word. But that's exactly what the medieval monastic system was doing by saying, here's a place where you can be a better and more faithful Christian, to which Melanchthon just says, no, 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 no. Yeah, it reminds me of the rich young ruler. Um, I'm thinking especially of the Gospel of Mark as it presents him. You know, he, he comes with this law-minded question, what must I do to be saved, right? And and what does he get from Jesus? But more law, right? And realize that he walks away sad because he realizes he can't be saved by the law. And I mean, this is foundational teaching that we have in the church. And yet, this is exactly that same sinful mindset that we still have playing out here. It, it, it's like the adversaries, the Roman Catholics, are trying to present, no, no, we really can be saved by the law any person who has their sinful flesh really wants to jump in and have something to do with their salvation because my sinful flesh wants to make the whole world and everything else about me and so in that making of everything about me and myself and i i'll try to find a way to make monastic vows something that i can do to make my holiness and my purity something that I can contribute to because deep down I really want to contribute but everything that I bring is as dirty rags and I have nothing good within me at all everything that I do everything that I teach think everything that I feel is tainted and corrupted by sin And so the only thing I have is the grace of Jesus Christ, because by myself, I got nothing. Yeah. And and it takes it it robs us of the true Christ who died for my sins. Right. The true gospel. And it turns them into, as they've made the point here, a new Moses. And and Pastor Apple, I know you wanted to to jump in uh, with something on that. So go ahead and take us away there. How how has Christ turned into a new Moses? What's their point in making that here? Right. So so the adversaries, if, if, when you look in the, the confutation, as you noted, there's a couple of quotes in here, and there's a really strong reference. In the, in the confutation, one of the things that the, the adversaries state is this, the monks seek to live as much as possible according to the gospel so that they might merit eternal life. And, and what's going on in the adversary's position there is that they're, they're taking Christ, and rather than seeing him as the Savior from sin, they're looking him looking at him as if he's a new Moses, as someone who came to give another law um, or a a better law, um, rather than someone who came to fulfill the law in our place. Um, And and so what what the adversaries are trying to do is is they're trying to follow what they see as this new, better law that Christ has, has given. 
And in so doing, they, they end up losing both good words that God has given. They lose the true law, the good law that we've talked about that God gives to us to, to show us um, the place in life he's given us to serve. Um, they, they lose that good law, and they also lose the good gospel. They end up um, missing the forgiveness of sins that is freely granted uh, for Christ's sake when they view Christ as this new lawgiver, um, one who came not to save from sin, but to, to give us more things, new things, uh, better things to do. And and from that viewpoint, you can see um, exactly how, you know, as, as I think as Pastor Ill was, was saying earlier, how they think, oh, we can be better Christians by being uh, monks because we're doing over and above, we're we're doing this better law that that Christ gave us, uh, much better than than you ordinary folks who are being moms and dads, husbands and wives, and those ordinary things. Um, so that I mean, it really is just a, a, a profound confusion of law and gospel that ends up losing uh, both of them at the same time. Confusion of law and gospel. There, there's a theologian that talks about that, isn't there? I I believe there be? is. Yeah. yeah. He's got an umbrella over his head behind us right now. <laughs> well, the statue of him, anyway. I believe his name is uh, yeah CFW Walther. Yeah, we've mentioned him here on the show maybe maybe only a couple times. His friends like you, Pastor Smith, uh, would refer to him as Ferdy, for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's he's definitely or Grandpa, you know, or Grandpa, Grandpa Walther. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, he he has some. I, you know, I I I'm, I must uh, confess, I, I zoned out for just a quick second while Pastor Apple was talking. Did you did you mention a quote from from uh, Grandpa Walther there? I I did not. Um, yeah, but, it, but and, I know that I you have one. <laughs> well, I I don't have I don't actually have the full quote in front of me. But in his in his you know in, in perhaps the the greatest thing that he's ever that he wrote um, his his work on law and gospel those lectures that he gave to seminary students um, his his fifth thesis there describes. Um, he begins to describe the various ways in which law and gospel are confused, and he names as the the first and the grossest and the most easily recognized confusion of law and gospel exactly what we're talking about here, that you would turn Christ into a new Moses, um, one who came to, to be a new and better lawgiver, um, and in so doing then turn your works into merits um, rather than seeing Christ as the Savior. So, I mean, what what we're reading here is is what Walter identifies as the the worst way possible um, and the easy, most easily recognized way possible of confusing the the two long gospel. Yeah, and and it really is as as we've made the point here too. It's something that really does plague the church throughout time. It, it's it's part of our sinful and fallen nature that we are prone to this this sort of thinking. But I you know I I do think it is still something that is still with us still today. Uh, and I've noticed, you know, even even myself as a pastor, at times I, I stumble into these things. You know, there's there's things that we want done around the church. And so we're almost sometimes a little tempted to get a little pushy with our people and, and start pushing them towards the things, well, you know, you really ought to be doing this. And, and really what we should do is just present what God has in his true word. And, and, and I've come to learn, you know, kind of the hard way, even maybe sometimes too, that probably some of the best works that are being done by the, the faithful that gather together for word and sacrament every Sunday, I, as a pastor may never see because it's being done in their homes and in the community. And, and, you know, when we, whenever we try to manipulate, you know, these sort of works that we want to see done, well, then we're creating law where, where God hasn't really said, you know, he, he may have it as encouragement in his word, certainly that we should, 
should do some things and be active in the church. Uh, and, and here, I, I think we even mentioned last week, too, sometimes there's the temptation that we still kind of get this way with doing foreign mission trips or short-term mission trips or, or you know, different stewardship things around the church and things like that. But we got to be very careful. We can, we can encourage those things. But I think there's a fine line. I mean, the Christian life is always one lived out in tension. There's a tension to be held there of encouraging those things. But so easily it becomes where we kind of make it more law again, because we have an idea of what we want to see done. And I think the church always lives in this tension. And so it's just something to point out and be be careful of and be wary of and so forth. And, and how is this being presented to you? And so that's why it's so key. And especially this is one of the reasons I love the liturgy is because the liturgy just kind of saves me from myself. You know, it presents to us very clearly the gospel Christ for you, for the forgiveness of sins, poor, miserable sinners that we are, as we confess right at the beginning. And it just drips you in that grace. And then, of course, there, I mean, God's law, his word is still there for us. And, and you'll find plenty of encouragement of all sorts of ways that you can live in love toward your neighbor, uh, flowing forth from this love that you have received from your Heavenly Father out of His graciousness. Uh, but uh, we, we got to hold it to encouragement and not turn Christ into another lawgiver. You know, and, and I, I still hear this in so many uh, American evangelical sermons out there and just in, in different pockets of the church in the world too of, you know, that it, it becomes much less about Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and much more about, well, Christ wants you to live this way. And that's just a whole lot of law. And, and I, you know, that, that's not going to save me. It's not going to save me on the day of judgment. Right? Pastor o? Something that I really appreciate about this, this article and this paragraph of the apology is uh, a lot of times when we think about the apology of the Augsburg Confession, we think of it as, uh, forgive me, but as, as dry theology, kind of boring, uh, really well-structured, good classical rhetoric kind of stuff. But here in the middle of, well, in paragraph 13, all of a sudden Melanchthon breaks into like prayer right in the middle. And it's like a good Southern American preacher, right? <laughs> exactly. And if it's okay, I'd like to read this again, because uh, as Melanchthon be simply begins to pray in the, con in the uh, defense or the apology of the Augsburg Confession, it really is, is beautiful. Oh, Christ, how long will you bear these accusations with which your enemies present your gospel? In the confession, we said that the forgiveness of sins is received freely for Christ's sake, through faith, O Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father. You revealed the gospel to the world. If our teaching is not the very voice of the gospel, it is not the eternal Father's judgment. We are rightly blamed. But your death is a witness. Your resurrection is a witness. The Holy Spirit is a witness. Your entire church is a witness of this. The true meaning of the gospel is that we receive the forgiveness of sins, not because of our merits, but because of you through faith. And I, and I kind of want to say amen, uh, yeah. because that is the, the end of Melanchthon's prayer here, as he confesses back to Christ what Christ has declared in his gospel uh, and what we have in Scripture. This is exactly that language as we were talking about uh, article, uh, the previous article about the Mass or the Divine Service, about how God reveals himself to us in his word, and then we respond in kind with what we've learned from his word. Yeah, I just kind of have this image here of, you know, I kind of made the joke that it's kind of like an, a, you know, a Southern American preacher, you know, here, but, but it is kind of, you know, here, here we are, we're just preaching this and, and 
we've reminded you of this before, but it bears reminding again, these, these are part of those articles that are of various abuses in the church. And so, you know, they're not the main points of doctrine, but yet as we've made the point in each one of these, they always bring us back to the main point of doctrine, especially article number four, the chief doctrine of the church, the, that doctrine, which the church stands and falls on the doctrine of justification. And it's like, how many ways and how many times do we need to say the gospel is Christ for you for the forgiveness of sins. That that's that's what it's all about. And 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 finally, it's just like I have this picture again of like you know Melanchthon's just like we've preached this enough. I'm going to burst out in a prayer. Maybe maybe the prayer will be answered, right? And so he's just kind of at his end there. Uh, but uh, it's it's a beautiful kind of thing in the midst of the article here. So this is a fun article actually. We talked last week about how it's like story time with Papa Melanchthon, you know, beginning us now. Now he's breaking out into prayer. This is a, this is an exciting article. Pastor Apple, with about 40 seconds here before we need to take a break, uh, did you have anything to mention on the prayer there? Yeah, I just see the very pastoral heart of, of this article and the, the confessions as a whole, that, that it's it's not about winning an argument or proving someone wrong, but it but it is about this truth that, that it is the gospel alone that can save us and that does save us because Christ is the one who's, who's died for our sins. And, and this great desire of the confessors to speak that truly and to teach that truly not for themselves but for the sake of of those troubled consciences that need that uh, assurance of their forgiveness of sins that's found in christ alone amen to that as well i i like what you said there because and that's what this show is about it's not about winning an argument uh, it's about presenting truth and so uh, amen to what you said there and Indeed. with that we're going to go to break but come on back as we continue to present and teach you the truth of christ jesus for you Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. I am World Earth News Digest host Kip Allen. The president gave his State of the Union address last Tuesday. He touched on many topics of concern to believers. Washington Observer Tim Gigline of Focus on the Family discusses the speech's implications with me on World Lutheran News Digest Wednesday at 2.30 and Saturday at 9.30 on Worldwide KFUO. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll talk with LWML about getting young women involved in missions, hear from Kelly Schumacher about her time creating liturgical art on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, and hear about life on the mission field in Uganda from missionaries Mark and Megan Manti. We'll learn about God's gift of family from author Brenda Jank. Pastor Hemmer helps us prepare for Lent with new Lenten devotions, and LCMS Youth Ministry shares more findings from their survey of LCMS young adults. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. What is it that you want to share with us? Call the KFUO comment line at 314-996-1542. Tell us what we're doing right, wrong, or just leave a message with your thoughts on why KFUO is important to you. What would you like to hear on KFUO to make your listening experience better? 
You can call us anytime at 314-996-1542. Thank you for listening and sharing your thoughts with KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Henry Osawa Tanner was one of the most distinguished artists of the 19th century and the first African-American artist recognized internationally for his work. He became known primarily for his paintings that depicted biblical themes in their original setting. Tanner was born in Philadelphia in 1859. His father was a teacher and bishop in the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. His mother was a former slave who escaped to Philadelphia through the Underground Railroad. Tanner painted important works depicting African-American subjects, but two of his most prominent and award-winning paintings were his acclaimed Daniel in the Lion's Den in 1895. And two years later, his Raising of Lazarus won a medal at the Paris Salon and became part of the collection of the Louvre in Paris. Engage with the Bible in its impact on the arts over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, the mind of Christ. And we are about the mind of Christ in presenting his truth, the gospel for you, Christ for the forgiveness of sins, especially as it pertains to this various abuse that was going on at the time of the Reformation, still happens at times in the church, and especially the mindset of it still plagues us today. And so uh, we are continuing to work our way through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Article 27 of Monastic Vows is the specific thing that we're talking about. However, as we continue to see here, it just it really all ties back in together, and, and we just keep making the same point over and over again that it all comes back to Christ. And when we start to deviate from that, we have a problem. To do that, uh, as we continue to have our discussion here today for the second week in a row on this article, we have our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians. We have Pastor Timothy Apple, who's the pastor of Grace Lutheran in Smithville, Texas. Pastor Peter Hill, who's the pastor of Trinity in Milstadt, Trinity Lutheran in Milstadt, Illinois. I can't talk. It just all fell apart on me. And our host is Wheels the off. venerable Pastor Sean Smith, <laughs> pastor of St. Paul and Emmanuel in Wine Hill and West Point in Southern Illinois. Beautiful country down there. It is. And, uh, you know, you'll be surprised, Pastor Hill, though you joined us a little late. I actually got all the contact information in at the beginning of the show. So I'm going to do it again here. High five. And so you can call in, interact, ask your questions, uh, and uh, we'd, we'd love to uh, interact with you. You can call 1-800-730-2727. You can also email us at kfuo at kfuo.org and find us on social media at kfuo radio. And let's go ahead and get back to this this article then and continue making our way through. We, we just wrapped up with uh, paragraph 13. We, we, we covered in the first half of the show, paragraphs 11 through 13. And we, in, in paragraph 13, we had just, you know, just pop on the length and breaking out into this prayer, you know, just like, Lord, help, help us proclaim the truth of your gospel. Uh, and, and that's still our prayer at all times. And so uh, let's go ahead and get back into this as we continue to proclaim this truth here. And so we're picking up with paragraph 14. When Paul denies that by Moses' law people merit the forgiveness of sins, he withdraws this praise much more from human traditions. He clearly presents this in Colossians 
If Moses' law, which was divinely revealed, did not merit the forgiveness of sins, how much less do these silly observances, hostile to the civil custom of life, merit the forgiveness of sins? That's like a chief point right there. I mean, like, you know, if, if Moses' law, which God gave to him, inscribed with his own finger on tablets, right, if that doesn't merit the forgiveness of your sins, how much more would your invented means do it, right? I mean, that, that's a oh, chief point. Good stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe even the summary of the whole article right here, right? Okay, but I'm going to get back to reading here. So picking up paragraph 15. The adversaries wrongly claim that Paul abolishes Moses' law and that Christ follows in such a way that he does not freely grant the forgiveness of sins, but forgives because of the works of other laws, if any are now created. By this godless and fanatical imagination, they bury Christ's benefit. Then they wrongly claim that among those who obey this law of Christ, the monks obey it better than others. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. That's just a funny point, especially if you've ever seen the the more recent Luther movie that's out there. And like, they really portray this well, how the monks weren't necessarily all that holy in the way that they were living. But yeah. Anyway. Okay. All right. I I should really just stick to reading here. Let's plug our way through here. But the monks, they claim the monks obey it better than others because of their hypocritical poverty, obedience, and chastity. Since indeed, all these things are full of sham. They brag about poverty most of all. No class of men has greater license than the monks. They boast of obedience. We do not like to speak about celibacy. Gerson indicates how pure this is in most of those who desire to be sexually pure. How many of them do how many of them do desire to be chaste? Of course, in this sham life, the monks live more closely according to the gospel. Christ does not follow Moses in such a way as to forgive forgive sins because of our works but to set his own merits and his own atoning sacrifice against god's wrath for us so that we may be freely forgiven now apart from christ's atoning sacrifice whoever applies his own merits to god's wrath and tries to receive the forgiveness of sins because of his own merits whether the works of moses's law or of the ten commandments or of the rule of benedict or of the rule of augustine or other rules does away with christ's promise has cast away christ and has fallen from grace this is Paul's verdict, Galatians 5, 4. Right, I'm going to go ahead and pause there. And, and, and I love how it's in italics here. If you're, if you're following along in your Concordia Reader's edition of the Book of Concord that we're working from, it's italicized, does away with Christ's promise, has cast away Christ, and has fallen from grace. That, that is a chief point here. That's what's at stake here. Uh, ultimately, you're doing away with Christ. As Melanchthon writes, he's really calling out the adversaries for majoring in the minors. And as, as he's addressing this to them, he says, look, this, this holiness that you have, this obedience that you claim, it's a sham. And it's whitewash and it's eye candy. And you want to talk about your vows of celibacy? Well, exactly how celibate are you and exactly how much do you desire to be chaste? You want to talk about your vow of poverty that comes with your monasticism? You guys have more stuff and more security and material things than people who haven't taken an order or a vow. Yeah, look at the Vatican Bank. Check out how much money is in that thing sometimes. Um, that, that would be one example, although I'll be, I'll be a little bit cautious about the Vatican Bank. I would rather talk about some of these particular houses and orders and some of the finery that they have. And then he goes on even to say, and you want to talk about your vow of obedience? 
You guys have more license and more freedom than other people do. You you want to make it sound like this vow of poverty and chastity and obedience is a really big deal, but you live in more self-created freedom than other people who haven't taken these vows, but still you want to make it sound like you've given up this huge self-sacrifice so that you can serve God better and so that you can be extra pious. And then you can offer your piety and your goodness and your obedience and your poverty and your chastity back to God as a gift. But, is like, it, okay. go ahead, Pastor Apple. Well, I was just to say, isn't it, isn't it amazing how, how even as, I mean, the whole time Melanchthon is, is writing about how these are works that they've made up. And and yet, even with these these works that they've made up, they still can't do them perfectly. And, and isn't it isn't it just telling how how anytime we try to, you know, find our righteousness in the law, we're we're constantly faced with the fact that we never measure up to that law. Even even when we're making up the laws, we can't do them perfectly. That's how how sinful we are. Um, and, and and what an amazing thing just to hold on to the simplicity of the gospel that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't measure up to God's standard, but Christ did, and he died and he rose for me that I might have the forgiveness of sins. And how much simpler and, and of course, more, far more comforting than to, to hold on to that truth rather than to, to try to seek, you know, my forgiveness, my righteousness by what I do. Yeah, that is a great irony. And, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about some of our founding fathers here in America, Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson tend to come to mind as uh, they, they were deists, right? And they were all about the moral teachings of Scripture, so much that the Jefferson Bible just cuts out all the miracles and things and just presents like these these moral teachings, right? And yet, if you look at them, especially in their lives, they were not, you know, uh, all that great at living to the morality that they even present themselves. Pastor Smith, what's a deist? A deist, right. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, that there's a God up there, but, you know, he's kind of often distant and not really active in the world or, or doing anything. And it would especially deny, uh, as we see it in early American uh, history, uh, deny the centrality of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's a great point. I know you know what a deist is, but you're just looking out for our listeners, I, making sure we're all on the same page. It, indeed. Sometimes we, we tend to sling around some of these fun words. Uh, I know I've been guilty of using the word piety today uh, more than once. And But trying to be clear, uh, Melanchthon slides in a couple of words that we're also not familiar with and a couple ideas we're not familiar with. He starts talking about the rule of Benedict and the rule of Augustine, and and that gets us a little bit turned around. Uh, But there were different orders and different kinds of monks in the medieval system, and two of the more major ones were the Benedictine monks, or the monks who followed this this rule or this order, this arrangement, written by Benedict. Uh, There was another group of monks who called themselves Augustinian. Uh, Now, Augustine didn't write the rule of Augustine, but there were... uh, people who came after him who wrote this rule, and we talk about uh, Martin Luther as being an Augustinian monk. And so even here, the idea of the uh, Augustinians or the, uh, or the Benedictines 
talks about these different kinds of monks. Elsewhere in the Confessions, they will sometimes talk about the Carthusians, which is a, another kind of a monk. Or they will talk about the Dominicans th that followed the rule of Dominic. All these different rules, uh, for, for our listeners, we don't need to worry about the differences in the rules because keeping any kind of a human-made, uh, invented order or rule for living together as Christians does not and cannot save you. And that's when Melanchthon is so quick to go back to Galatians 5 and say that anyone who does away with Christ's promise has cast away Christ and fallen from grace. When you start to trust yourself, when you turn yourself or any kind of a holy action or piety or any kind of a rule or order or arrangement or ideal uh, into the most important thing, you have created an idol. And we are called in God's law that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and that he continued to reiterate throughout Scripture to have no idols and to have no false gods before the Lord our God, not even ourselves. And that is what's at stake here for Melanchthon and for every person is their self-confidence to save themselves. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the word piety there, and I, I, I make this note. The idea of people serving Christ in a disciplined way and as a disciplined community, which is the whole idea behind monasticism, these different monastic orders following whoever is kind of at the head of them, you know, that's certainly a very useful idea. It's very good for the church. One of the more popular books that come out recently that, that gained a lot of notoriety uh, across several different denominations was uh, The Benedict Option, written by Rod Dreher. Um, and, and again, when you boil down to what he's presenting in that book, uh, I think we even mentioned this maybe last week, essentially what he's talking about is living as a disciplined Christian, you know, in, in a very intentional way. And that's, that's good. That's notable. Um, however, as, as what's being pointed out here, Luther himself as an Augustinian monk is kind of from the inside pointing out, look, it, it's not, we're, as an institution, we're not even about what we began as anymore. It's, it's devolved into something that really supplants Christ, loses the gospel, and this is why we've got to write about it. And in and, and the confutation, the Roman Catholics responded to this, you know, saying that, all of their points on monasticism are wicked notions. And so that's where we are defending our position here and saying, no, they're not wicked notions. What you are currently teaching in regards to monasticism is what's wicked because you're losing Christ. And that, that you just can't lose the gospel because that's just an unsound place to be standing, especially when we see Christ coming again. Right. What, how are we going to stand there because of how I've lived? Well, how is that working out for you to ask the Dr. Phil question? Right. And, and that's basically what Papa Melanchthon is. We're, we're, we got to stop calling him Papa Melanchthon. I think I'm, I, I think I've just decided in my mind he's always going to be Papa Melanchthon from here on out. <laughs> but then we have grandpa walther who came much later after it's very confusing this this rhetoric that we set up here anyway back back to the show but uh, <laughs> so yeah i mean save us pastor you, apple well to 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 bring it back to what, what you're saying about you know the idea of a disciplined life and everything like that i mean you think about what what luther says in, in the catechism concerning reception of the sacrament of the altar fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training, right? I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with those things in terms of outward training. They can be helpful. 
But, he says, that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. If we don't keep that central thing the central thing, then we're going to lose everything. Um, to, to not hold on to the words that Christ has given, and, and here thinking you know, more broadly than the sacrament, right? To not hold on to those words that he's given, that he is the Savior, he's died and risen, and he's given this forgiveness to us freely by his grace. When we let go of that, then it doesn't matter what kind of fasting and bodily training we do. And, and as Melanchthon you know, points out here in, in paragraph 17, it doesn't matter if you're doing the fasting and bodily training that the rule of Benedict and Augustine require you or the fasting and bodily training that, that the law of Moses might require you. If you don't have faith in Christ, none of that matters. You've, you've lost the gospel. You've lost salvation. And, and so what, what always counts, what what the confessions always are, are bringing us back to is that free forgiveness of sins that is ours by grace through faith on account of Christ. I love how Pastor Apple always takes us back to the fundamentals, right? I mean, it, you would make a great basketball coach, I think, you know, like just, you know, like some little league players out there, you know, just taking them to the fundamentals, you know, but it's a good, it's a good place to go. And and so as, as we come back to that fundamentals of, of the catechism, as you've taken us several times in this show, right, that, that really does form us around, you know, how, how the relation of living in these disciplined, intentional ways, the Christian life that we desire to live, but having the right mindset that, that it really all flows forth from God's grace. And, and that's just a beautiful beautiful way to to have this understanding of, of what's really at stake here in this article. Anyway, thank you very much for doing that, Pastor Apple. I, I always, you know, Pastor L does an excellent job too, but I love how you intentionally bring us back to that catechism. And ultimately, this is a chance for us to read the Apology of the Augsburg Confession and the Catechism along with Scripture and do it devotionally. I still remember I had, uh, when I was in college, I had a professor say to me, well, you know, you just need to read the Book of Concord devotionally. And I, I did something wrong, for which I still need to apologize. I laughed, uh, because I had no idea what he meant by reading the, the Catechism or any other part of the Book of Concord devotionally. This is not a replacement for Scripture. It speaks alongside and says the same thing as Scripture does. But as we read it, it unpacks things in a way that is really helpful and devotional. And so... Some of our listeners might be listening to this and saying they're talking about monastic orders and monks and nuns and Benedictines and Augustines and, and stuff. And I have I don't know how this relates to me. Pastor Apple, by bringing us back to the Ten Commandments, by bringing us back to these certainly fine outward trainings that we are given Still, it is not a replacement for faith. And so there is no vow or no promise that you can make that will supplement Christ. After all, does Christ need any help to be your Savior? Absolutely not. That's the point that Melanchthon is making, and it's a point that I need to be reminded of daily. Because my sinful flesh wants to help Jesus be a better Savior, as weird as that sounds, but I want to do that all the time. But Jesus doesn't need my help. I might be running down a rabbit trail here, but I think it's interesting that you, you use that word devotionally, right? Mm -hmm. And we think about that word, 
we speak of devotion, right? And we desire to be devoted to Christ and living the Christian life. But we got to, once again, understand what is the nature of that devotion? Is it to living a specific way, which is what the idea had developed around monasticism, um, you know, and that I have something to boast of, essentially, in the way that I'm living according to this right order, right? Or is it flowing forth from God's grace to me, and I and I desire to be devoted to this, this great life that Christ has made possible for me, right? And, and, and it's just, yeah, read it devotionally. Grandpa Walther talks about this, too. You know, he actually talks about the Book of Concord and how it should be in every Lutheran home. And he says, you know, a, a lot of lay people out there, they would think, you know, oh, that old book is just for just for pastors, right, and everything. But no, we can read this devotionally, especially when we have the foundation. And so I, I commend our listeners. You're, you're doing something not a lot of Christians really do. You're doing something very devotional in listening to the show. And I'm not just, like, propping up this show. I'm, I'm actually saying this this is good that we should do this uh, because it, it once again speaks to God's grace that has so captivated us that we desire to be devoted to him, his word, and his faithful teaching, right? And so we... We, we have shows like this where we where we do that. And as we get to do that, uh, Melanchthon even invites the emperor to whom the Apology of the Augsburg Conve- Confession is addressed to read this devotionally. And he's about to address the emperor and say, Emperor, not only do I want you know, all those 21st century Christians to read this devotionally, but I want you to read this devotionally. I'm going to have brother, since we've got grandpa and papa and everything, I'm going to have brother Apple go ahead and read that for us. Uh, go ahead and read a couple paragraphs here for us, Pastor Apple. All right, so we're starting here in paragraph 18 of the article. Look, most merciful Emperor Charles. Look, you princes. Look, all you ranks. How great is the impudence of our of the adversaries. Although we have quoted Paul's declaration to this effect, they have written, Wicked are those things that are here cited against monasticism. What is more certain than that men receive the forgiveness of sins through faith for Christ's sake? And these wretches dare to call this a wicked belief. We do not doubt that if you had been advised about this passage, you would have taken care that such blasphemy be removed from the confutation. It has been fully shown above that this belief is wicked. We receive the forgiveness of sins because of our works. Therefore, we shall be briefer here, for the level-headed reader will easily determine that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins by monastic works. Therefore, this blasphemy, which appears in Thomas, also cannot be tolerated. The monastic profession is equal to baptism. It is insane to make human tradition, which has neither God's command nor promise, equal to Christ's ordinance. Baptism has both God's command and promise, which contains the covenant of grace and of eternal life. You know, they've made the point here. I I think if I've got my count right, it's at least six times where they've cited that the confutation says that what the Lutherans are teaching is wicked. And then we kind of respond. It's kind of like a mobbing going on here. I mean, they're just mobbing us with this word, you know, like it's wicked. But but the reality is, and we can't emphasize this point enough, right? What what? what the adversaries are teaching is actually what is wicked. And so we rightly use that in response to their teaching um, because again, it's wicked to rob us of Christ, who he is and what he came for and what, what it's all about. Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, as St. Paul says to pastor Timothy. Right. And so uh, we, we got to keep our, our, our focus there. And, and yet here uh, we're making an appeal. Emperor Charles, all you princes, look, look at what's going on here. Look at what the adversaries are doing. They're calling us wicked, but, 
it's wicked what they're doing to the poor lost souls in the churches out there that are that are working with faulty and and shaky foundations uh, built up on works that, that give us no hope. And there's this assumption, had you, emperor, and had you, princes, uh, thoroughly and carefully read the confutation, we know that you would have taken out something that is this obviously bad. And uh, even if you would look back at what Thomas, that is Thomas Aquinas, the scholastic theologian, uh, said about monastic vows being equal to baptism, you wouldn't have let that stand in the confutation. You wouldn't you wouldn't say that we have we have trust and confidence that if you were were really weighing the adversary's points you would say oh this isn't right uh they're making an appeal to the christianity of emperor, of emperor charles and of the princes to say hey read this in light of scripture is a monastic vow not found in scripture really equal to baptism given us by jesus is are these kinds of statements really what you want to be signing off on? Uh, and they're calling them to re-examine the confutation that the adversaries had prepared and the teaching of the adversaries to the uh, Augsburg Confession. And to be reasonable in, as they re-examine, because, you know, we all know the danger. What's at stake? Our institutions are built up around this, and there's a lot of money at stake. And, and so I, I love what you say there. You know, if you really thought about this, you know, emperor and princes, you, you realize there's no way you could be on board with this. So think reasonably about this. Consider what's at stake. And so that's why we're making such a big deal of this and why they write on. And, and it brings us back to the point of if you're sitting there listening, you know, you're to be commended for for listening to a show like this and caring about your faith and growing in the knowledge of it. But if you're wondering, what does this monastic vows have to do? Well, this is what it has to do. It, it has to do with Christ. Pastor Apple, anything to add there with a couple of minutes left in the show? Yeah, I mean, you know, there in paragraph 19, how, how Melanchthon again just drives us back home to, to the basic starting point. What is more certain than that men receive the forgiveness of sins through faith for Christ's, Christ's sake? You know, go go back to the basics again. What what do we if we don't know this then we don't know anything what what could possibly be more certain from the from the teaching of god's word that we receive forgiveness of sins through faith for christ's sake not because of moses law not because of any vows that we make um as as monks you know i mean and and that that point about baptism is just fantastic as to how monasticism in, insults both the law and the gospel you know that that it it replaces what god has given with a man-made work and and then it, it would say that that's even better than the the very vehicle through which god saves us the uh, the water and word of holy baptism you know go back to the beginning um, and just how every article, including this one, drives us home to that main point, the most certain thing that we have as Christians, that we are forgiven through faith for Christ's sake. It's a beautiful thing that he just keeps pushing us back to that, that firm foundation. It really is the firm foundation. And I love what you say there. What is more certain? And I mean, that's, that's really when it all boils down to it, we continue to make this point here on this show. It really is all about the gospel, Christ for you, and his word gives to us this gift of baptism. Why, how dare you, adversaries, build up something else that, that supplants this gift, that baptism now saves you. That's the simple teaching from God's own word. And, and here you're directing to all these other sorts of works which are uncertain. 
So be certain. Be certain about Christ for you. That's really what this station is all about, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, right? We have that kind of slogan. And and it's not just kitschy words that we're speaking. It really is. We want you to be certain about your faith, how you are saved when Christ comes again. That's what this article on monasticism boils down to. We're going to continue talking about it in the weeks to come. But for now, we thank you very much for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.